Many kings, many rulers, many governments, of course, have come and gone. And when they gain authority, they tend to think of themselves as being self-sufficient. They often become proud in spirit and inflated with pride in what sometimes appears to be our own self-sufficiency. In today's text, we're reminded of God's sovereignty over all the earth, including the governments of mankind. Isaiah prophesies about a day when God will summon a foreign king by name in order to bring about liberation for his people. And God makes it very clear why he's doing this. He does this so that this king will know that it's the Lord who, who did it, that he is the true God. He rises up this king for the sake of the promises that he made to his people Israel. And he does it so that the nations would know that he alone is God. The big idea this morning, this passage, is an encouragement that we can trust that the Lord's promises are secure because he providentially governs the governments of mankind. Even just this week, we had a prime minister of Britain step out of, step out of office. There was an assassination in Japan of a former political official. There's constantly political turmoil and upheaval. We're going to make three points from this text. Three points from this text. And they're up there on the slide that you can see. First, that the Lord alone is the sovereign creator and governor of history. We'll see this just from the end of chapter 44 there. Second, that the Lord uses surprising means to bring about his purposes. And we'll see that in the beginning of chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. And then third, that we should patiently lean into God's promises of restoration. Just from that final verse there. Verse 8 of chapter 45. So, that's the plan. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we pray that you would help us to calm our hearts, calm our minds, help us to focus this morning. Father, we pray for those who are anxious uh, here, who are uncertain about the future and what it might hold. Uh, we pray that this message would be a strong encouragement to them, a reminder that you have everything in check, uh, that we are not simply victims of circumstance, but that we can trust you and you alone. Amen. So first, the Lord alone is the sovereign creator and governor of history. From verses 24 to 28 there. This is a basic and fundamental message, a very basic reminder about who God is. Uh, if you read very long in the book of Isaiah, you'll know that there are some repeated themes that keep coming back up. Probably the most repeated theme is a warning against idolatry. Isaiah hammers home this warning against idolatry over and over again from multiple different angles. So if you've got your Bible there in front of you, you can look just in chapters 44 and 45. Look at chapter 44, verse 6. It says, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Now look at verse 24 of 44. I am the Lord, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself. Scoot down to 45, 5, where he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And then in verse 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 21, there is none besides me. Verse 22, 
I am God and there is no other. So seven times, just in these two chapters here alone, Yahweh, this is the, the God of Israel, explicitly reminds his people of his exclusivity, that he alone is God. Why is it that you think that uh, Isaiah would need to repeat this message so much? Well, since the beginning of Israel's history, they have been tempted into idolatry. They came out of Egypt, and as soon as Moses took too long coming down the mountain, they crafted a golden calf and began to worship it. When they entered into the Promised Land, they started to get pulled into the pagan religions of the Assyrians, the Canaanites. And when Isaiah is writing, they would have been familiar with the false gods of Babylon as well. They had exposure to all these false religions. Now, God had called Israel out of the nations to worship him alone. But it didn't work out that way for very long. He wanted to create and cultivate Israel as it was his, his own vineyard. But they produced wild grapes, weeds. This is the language that Isaiah gives us in chapter 5. They simply didn't do a great job of remaining distinct in their worship of Yahweh alone, the true God. They made offerings to other gods. They worshiped the works of their own hands. This is the message that we see from the prophets. And so this passage, just a quick reminder, is, is following what we heard last week, that Andy preached on last week, about the foolishness of idolatry that we found there in verses 9 through 17 of chapter 44. Isaiah there illustrates how silly it is for anyone to create an idol with his own hands and then to worship what he has just created as if it created him. To fall down in front of it as if it had power over him when he is the one who made it. It seems foolish when you say it like that. But why would this message need to be repeated? Why would somebody be tempted out of the worship of the true and living God and into idolatry? Why do some get pulled away from worshiping the true and living God into idolatry? Here are a few thoughts. It's not an exclusive or comprehensive list, but here's a, a way to get started, perhaps. First, we just have to start with fallen humanity's basic sinfulness. We are prone to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so apart from the grace of God, our hearts are deceitful. They are wicked, darkened, deceptive, they're foolish. Second, they would have been strong peer pressure to act like the other nations that surrounded Israel. All the other nations had these fancy idols, they had these fancy gods. It's difficult to be different. So they would have been like, you mean you've only got one God and you don't even get to make statues of them? Kind of sounds lame, Israel. You guys get with the program. It takes a lot of courage to stand out in a crowd and stand firmly behind the conviction of your conscience. We don't like to be different. I know that we think that we do, but we really don't. Uh, even teenagers who think that they're trying to stick it to the man and be different are acting just like the rest of their peers. We don't like to be different. It's difficult. This is why Paul reminds us, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, that bad company ruins good morals. Third, a love of sin. In the pagan mythical religions of Israel's neighboring nations, morality and ethics weren't really a thing. It's not a primary concern. In fact, the Canaanite temples involved prostitution in an act of worship. And so the draw of being sexually promiscuous and being free to sort of make your own rules about what's right and wrong must have had a great amount of attraction. It must have had a great strong pull. 
Fourth, and I think this is what comes through most clearly in our text this morning, is a desire for control. The idol makers crafted little representations of a god in order to manipulate it into giving what they wanted. So, for example, if you want rain, you can create a, a goddess of rain and then give it a sacrifice in order that it will give you what it is that you want. You dictate the terms, you give the demands. It's a way to try to manipulate reality and to bend it to your will. If they had more modern technology back then, like something that we have today, I'm sure they would have looked a little more like action figures that you could have posed. You can make them stand up, you can make them sit down, maybe even a little string on the back that you can pull, and it repeats your favorite message. You can pull it and it says, go ahead and eat the tasty fruit, or I want you to live your best life now, or you're perfect just the way you are, or you should never have to do anything hard or boring. We would love to be able to program our idols to tell us the messages that we want to hear. We create idols to reflect and satisfy our fallen desires. One of those fallen desires is a longing for control and a certain knowledge of what the future holds. That's the way it is with any man-made gods. Did you know that we can, we can read the Babylonian creation myth? So some of the nations that were surrounding Israel at the time, we have record of what they said happened in the beginning. We have a record of the Babylonian creation myth in a work found towards the end of the 19th century. It's a book called Enuma Elish. The Babylonians looked at creation they recognized that there's a higher power here. We obviously didn't create ourselves. So what exactly happened here? And so in their imagination, they come up with a story. They seem to see these forces. There's forces of order, like the changing of the seasons, but then there's forces of chaos, like the seas. And so they, they imagine that there are gods that are fighting a cosmic battle between the orders of chaos and the, or, uh, the, the powers of order, of good and evil of well-being and calamity. And since these gods were creations of their own depraved imaginations, they tended to take on the personality of the people who created them. Does that make sense? They made gods that were like supercharged versions of themselves. And so in Enuma Elish, the gods are pictured as petty and emotional superhumans, and not too dissimilar from what you might find in um, a Marvel movie. The story goes that creation started because one of the most powerful gods named Marduk killed one of the other gods who was his grandma named Tiamat. And there's this whole story that goes with it involving other gods. There's backstabbing, there's drama. It's like an episode of Real World Babylon or like a twisted episode of the Power Rangers. So what happens is Marduk gets his grandma, splits her in half, quote, like a shellfish, and uses half of her to stretch out into the heavens. The other half, he spreads out into the earth. And then he creates mankind, and he makes them as sinful savages in order to serve the gods so the gods can just chill. There were dozens of these gods, and Marduk was like the boss. As his story developed over the centuries, he was called Bel. And Bel had a son named Nebo. And if you look at chapter 46 of Isaiah, you'll see both of those names mentioned in verse 1. Bell and Nebo both. Why have I told you all this? Well, first, 
I think it helps us to understand the message of the prophets when we can do what we can to try to enter into the world of the ancient Near East. Isaiah's message was not written to us, and so some of it seems a little confusing. So we're helped to have some level of awareness of Israel's cultural context. And when we do, the things that the prophets talk about come to life just a little bit more. So look at Isaiah 44, 24. 44, 24. The Lord, Yahweh, made all things. He alone stretched out the heavens. He alone spread out the earth. In other words, listen up, Israel. I know everybody around you is like trying to give this guy Marduk credit for stretching out the heavens and spreading out the earth. Don't believe the hype. It's a trap. These are demonic deceptions. Marduk did not create anything. Yahweh alone created all things. And he didn't team up with or compete with any other gods in order to make it happen. So when the word says that no one else does these things, we should read that everyone who says that they did is a liar. No one else can take credit for any of this. Now, the second reason that I want to bring up the Babylon uh, mythical pagan religions is just to show the strong distinction between the God who is and the gods that we create. Even if we don't craft little statues from wood and from gold, we sometimes still try to twist God into our own understanding. We try to put him into our own little comfortable boxes. We try to make him more like who we want him to be. Not wooden figurines, but nonetheless figments of our imagination. If God isn't surprising or challenging to you, then you need to be open to the possibility that you are actually trying to create God in your image rather than the other way around. We don't get to tell the creator what is acceptable for him to do. We didn't make him. He made us. Our understanding of God must be based on the explicit, clear, divine revelation from the word, who he tells us he is, not who we feel like we want him to be. And this is a constant temptation that we must be aware of. But what do you think that's different about us in, in 2022 in America compared to those unenlightened Babylonians 3,000 years ago? We definitely have more knowledge than, than they had access to. We have more technology. But at heart, I think it seems evident that humanity has not grown out of its sinful focus on self. We still worship the God of self. Starting in September for nine weeks during the 915 equipping hour, we're going to cover this book that you see on the slide there behind me. We're going to spend some time together in an interactive way, studying scripture and studying this book to, to sort of understand how the idolatry of self has taken root in our modern world. There's a book called Strange New World by Carl Truman, published from Crossway. It's a great book. It's sort of a popularized distillation of a much bigger book. So this is the one that we're going to be studying. If anybody here is planning on coming to this study and would promise to read this book, I would love to give it to you right now. I saw a hand right down here. Get it. I'll get it to you after the service. We'll have an opportunity to, to order those and, and prepare for that study as it comes up. But here's, here's the thrust of these verses. God's power over creation is directly tied to his power over history. 
His power over creation is tied directly to his power over history. It's not that he's gotten really good at predicting the future like a chess player. It is that as creator, he has the authority and the ability to govern human history. He will not be domesticated. He will not be manipulated. His purposes always stand, and he does whatever he pleases. He upholds the words and counsel of his prophets, verse 26 tells us. And sometimes God brings about his purposes in a surprising way. Second, the Lord uses surprising means to bring about his purposes. 44 verses 1 through 7. The Lord uses surprising means, that is, actions or methods, to bring about his promises and his purposes. These verses go into some detail about how God is going to maintain his promise that we heard about just in this passage before this, about how he is not going to forget, he's not going to forsake his people. After their time of exile, Israel would be allowed to return back to the land and rebuild the temple. But the way that that was going to happen was surprising. God was going to use a Gentile king, not an Israelite king, to free them from their bondage. Notice there in verse, uh, the last verse of chapter 44, 28. Notice what Isaiah calls Cyrus. He's giving the word of the Lord here. He says that Cyrus is the Lord's shepherd. And then look in the first verse of chapter 45. He calls Cyrus his anointed. Now, literally, that word is Messiah. He's saying that Cyrus is my Messiah. Now, this is the only time that a foreign king is ever called a Messiah in Scripture. Normally, this is used of Saul and of David and of Israel's kings in general. So this is surprising. But here it is, describing a foreign king who would deliver Israel. And what makes this extra crazy is that Isaiah is writing this around the 700s B.C. This is 150 years before Cyrus. And he's calling him here by name, saying that Cyrus would capture Babylon. Cyrus is really a, an interesting historical figure. Babylon, of course, we know is that great empire. It was the greatest empire in the world at that time. Babylon captured Judah. They captured Israel. They, they brought him into their land. And they were thought to be undefeatable. They had a huge wall, these big brass walls, bronze walls. Uh, right up against the river, a very well-defended city. They were thought to be undefeatable. But after Nebuchadnezzar died, there was a ruler named Cyrus who started to rise to power. And he was from Persia, so it was like modern-day Iran. That's where he's coming from. And he created the most powerful political and military force the world had seen up to that point. So Babylon was the great kingdom, but Persia is going to be a bigger, greater kingdom that's going to come and displace Babylon. And we've got a lot of biblical, extra-biblical, I should say, outside of the Bible, information about Cyrus and about his reign and about how he captured Babylon and so much of the ancient Near East. One of the things that was different about Cyrus is that when he would conquer a nation, he would let them stay in their lands, the people that he conquered, he would let them stay, he would let them stick with their culture and still worship the God that they were devoted to. And that's different because the, God, uh, or the, the, the rulers, the conquerors, the kings of Babylon and Assyria, when they would capture someone, they would take them out of their land and bring them back home and train them to worship the gods of their nations. This is why Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, remember? He's told that he needs to worship the gods of Babylon. He won't do it. 
Well, Cyrus comes in, he has a different approach. Cyrus found out that they were more successful politically if they, after they captured people, they allowed them to flourish with their own cultures and with their own religions in their own land. And so this is how Israel would be freed from Babylon and allowed to return to their home, return to the land, and rebuild the temple. That's what was recorded for us in the book of Ezra that was read earlier in the service. And what's really fascinating to, to me, anyway, is that archaeologists discovered an artifact in 1879 in modern-day Iraq called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a, a piece of pottery with some inscriptions on it in cuneiform. And since no one here can read cuneiform, I'll put some English on top of it as well. It describes Cyrus's conquest of Babylon. It says, I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king, King of Babylon, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the Four Corners. I returned the images of the gods who had resided there in Babylon to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned them to their dwellings. So, in other words, it says that he allowed those who were captured by the Babylonians to go back to their homelands and practice their own religion. It's like a press release that Cyrus is sending out, that there's a new sheriff in town. So this is just fascinating information. We know, historically, we can corroborate that on October 29th, in the year 539 BC, Cyrus and the Persians conquered Babylon and issued the decree that Israel could go back to their land and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, who do you think that King Cyrus gave the credit for his victory to? It was not the Lord, but Marduk. You remember that god of Babylon, that false Babylonian god. Cyrus was a clever politician. He was willing to tell people whatever he needed to tell them in order to gain favor with them and to maintain his control over them. But here's, here's what we know by divine revelation from the book of Isaiah. He was under the control of the sovereign god of heaven and earth who used him, whether he knew it or not, to achieve his purposes for his holy people. He was an instrument in the Lord's hands. So Cyrus was the bowling ball that knocked down the pins, but God rolled the strike. He alone, as the sovereign creator, governs the governments of mankind. Now remember, Isaiah is telling his message to his audience before the exile to Babylon even takes place. God is telling Judah that he's going to use this nation of Babylon as his instrument of judgment, of discipline, and then he's going to use Cyrus, the Persians, as an instrument of his blessing. God's calling his shot with some shocking specificity, and we know that it plays out exactly as the way it was prophesied. Notice in chapter 44, starting in verse 25, it says that he frustrates the signs of liars. He makes fools of diviners. He makes foolish the wise and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So in other words, all y'all's false prophets of false gods cannot predict the future because God can sovereignly frustrate any of your prophecies. They can't govern and control creation because it doesn't belong to them. They're not the author of creation. So in the ancient Near East, they had a practice of what they called divination. They had these people that were called diviners who would slaughter animals and then lay out the entrails, the guts, and try to interpret the future based on what those guts look like. 
I know that it sounds ridiculous, but it's really not too different from reading tea leaves or reading tarot cards or reading your uh, astrology or reading palms, these sorts of things. These diviners try to anticipate the future or to interpret the present. And often they simply told people what their itching ears wanted to hear. But God can call the end from the beginning because he decreed whatsoever comes to pass. He alone gives us the proper interpretation historically of events. And this is, this is important kind of just as, as an aside. Unless we have explicit divine revelation that interprets history for us, we should be very careful about making pronouncements about current events. So when well-being or calamity comes to a place, we need to be careful not to be like those false prophets and diviners who try to discern God's hidden will. So if there's a flood or an earthquake that happens in a certain place, we really shouldn't be trying to explain what God was accomplishing there because he didn't tell us. We do not know the secret counsel of God's will. None of us are prophets. The right posture to take is that we zoom out and we simply affirm what God's ultimate plans are and we trust him in and through all the many ups and downs of human history. Because history does not always play out the way that we expect that it would, or in our limited wisdom in the way that we hope that it would. But we recall that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Look again at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 45. God says he forms light and creates darkness. And he makes well-being and creates calamity. He does all these things. Did you know that verse was in the Bible? Is it a little uncomfortable to come to terms with what that says? This is surprising. This is challenging. This is unsettling. But let's consider how this might actually be an encouragement to us this morning. The first thing that we notice is that on, on a cosmic level... There is no battle going on between gods or forces of chaos and order. There is no duel of the fates happening in reality. There are not different gods fighting over what's going to happen in the future. The Lord says that he alone does all these things. Now let's be clear, God is not the author of evil. We know this. But as the providential governor of all events, we must acknowledge that both well-being and calamity are sent by him. This is what Isaiah is telling us. God is going to send Babylon as calamity, as judgment, as discipline, and then he's going to send Cyrus as deliverance. We know that he makes use of the uncoerced actions of humanity, but we can never attribute anything in history to fortune or to luck or to chance or any other force in the universe. Cyrus didn't know that fully what he was doing, but he was acting in an uncoerced way, and yet God superintended it, governed over that history to make his purposes come to pass. Second, rightly understood, this should bring comfort to us, because his sovereignty over darkness and calamity means that we can be assured that he also can create light and peace. Let me say that again. His sovereignty over darkness and calamity means that we can be assured that he also can create light and peace. 
There's difficulty here. There's mystery here beyond our understanding. We don't dare inquire into the hidden mind of God, his eternal counsel, but we can embrace the comfort of knowing that nothing comes to us aside from his command. Events in our lives or in the history of our nation might be shocking. It might be surprising. But if we trust the goodness of the Lord's character, we'll enjoy the peace of allowing God to be God. And we can patiently lean into God's promises of restoration. Third, we should patiently lean into God's promises of restoration. We see this just here in this final verse of our passage. God promised that deliverance would come to his people through his servant, Cyrus. And that did happen. He liberated them. He allowed them to return and to rebuild the temple. And that was a huge deal. Uh, not just for Israel, but like in the drama of redemptive history, Israel needed to return to the land so that the Messiah could come from, uh, from the land, from Jerusalem. But in the big picture, Israel's problem isn't simply that they exist out of, outside of the land. Israel's big problem is that of sin. They were sinners in need of salvation. And you and I, just like them, we don't simply need physical liberation from oppression. We need spiritual salvation from sin, death, and the devil. And as we'll see later this summer in the book of Isaiah, the Lord has another servant aside from Cyrus. There is a different prophecy about a different servant who would suffer on behalf of his people, recorded for us in Isaiah 53. He would be pierced for their transgressions. He would be crushed for their iniquities. And the punishment that brought peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, his people would be healed. As interesting as a character as Cyrus is, as a king and as a servant, as a conqueror, he pales in comparison with Jesus Christ, who is the true and better king and servant and conqueror. Israel's sin put them into physical exile in Babylon, and Cyrus would bring them physical liberation, their physical freedom, but another servant would have to come to bring them the salvation from their sin that they needed, their spiritual freedom. This last verse here in our passage, verse 8, has been used in the last few centuries as a part of an Advent hymn. Uh, Advent, of course, is that season of that, that leads up to Christmas where we sort of stir up our hearts to anticipate the second coming of Christ. And it does seem like a really appropriate text for that concept. God made good on his promises to bring a change in government over Israel that would allow them to worship him freely. And he, he predicted that it was going to happen 150 years in advance. More importantly, he promised another servant who would come to bear the guilt of his people's sin. And that servant, too, came, although it took another 500 years after Cyrus. The Lord's past performance of keeping his promises should fuel our faithfulness here this morning. We live, I think, in usually, unusually divided times, uh, politically and socially. Here's a helpful reminder from God's word to pray for the authorities that he has put over us so that they might rule well, so that we might be able to live peacefully. Many governments and kingdoms have risen and fallen since Nebuchadnezzar and since Cyrus. 
Let's seek the kingdom of God first as Christians in this land, working together for the common good, for the social good. And let's trust his hands, even during times of serious upheaval and uncertainty. In the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and swear allegiance to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the true king. That is when the salvation that Isaiah writes about here, that salvation and that righteousness will fully and finally bear fruit on the earth. Psalm 27, verses 13 to 14 says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Meditating on God's providential guidance of history for the good of his people should be a relief to us this morning. We must be able to hand over our anxieties and our worries about the near or distant future individually, as a church, as a nation, as a community, as a whole world. All of these things must be handed over to the sovereign governor of all things, God. No one is adding any time to his life by worrying. Living out our days in sighs and in groans is not the fullness of life that Christ brought for us, that Christ bought for us. We're pushing back against the hand of God and his providential guidance in fear and distrust, uh, grumbling, not trusting in him. These are the sorts of things that actually put Israel into exile in the first place. So if you struggle with anxiety and an inability to trust that God really does have everything in check, even in times of turmoil and turbulence, tumult, let me give you a suggestion. Tonight, before you go to sleep, just take five minutes and write down the things that you're worried about. The things that keep gnawing at your mind when you're trying to go to sleep. Write them down. And then pray and give them to God. Confess your unbelief and ask him to build your faith in his sovereignty and in his goodness. Ask him to help you live with joy as you embrace whatever it is that God has providentially brought your way. If he gave his son for you, Romans reminds us, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? And if he is able to rise and fall kingdoms of the world and the nations of the world, doesn't he have the sovereignty to providentially care for you? We can trust that the Lord's promises are secure because he providentially governs the governments of mankind. Nothing will separate you from his love. There is nothing outside of his control. As one who is united by faith with Christ, you are protected, you are provided for. He has secured your salvation, and even in the midst of the various changes that are happening in the world, he always preserves his people. Even when it seems like things are random, they're tossed about by the winds of fortune, that's not actually what's happening. We remember that God never leaves nor forsakes his people. He is your guardian, he is your defender, he is your redeemer. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. If you're not a Christian, there is a warning that's going to come up in our sermon text next week, here just in the end of chapter 45. A reminder about the, the return of Yahweh, the Lord, a theme that's picked up again in uh, Philippians chapter 2. It's a promise 
And it's a warning that at one point, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, that there is none beside him. So if you've not done that now, come and talk to me after the service. You want to be able to bow to him as your Lord and Savior instead of your judge. If there's anybody here this morning who wants to talk about that, you're in a great place. Come and talk to me after the service. Friends, be encouraged this morning by remembering what the message of Isaiah, though it was not written for us, it was written, or written, not written to us, it was written for us. There's a great reminder here of the sovereignty of God over all of the nation's affairs, which should lead us to a great assurance that he can providentially guide our lives. Let's pray.